Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to this special live streaming recording of the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China. The Seneca Podcast is produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news from China through our daily email newsletter, our website, our app, and our growing range of videos and podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Over the last five months, like many of you, I've spent a lot more time than before in the kitchen. There are basically three cuisines that I cook in regular rotation. Chinese, and especially Sichuan cuisine. Mexican, honoring my roots growing up in Tucson, Arizona, actually. And Indian, which I just, I think, accounts for most of my weight gain. Um, and all of them are, are tied together by one ingredient in particular, and that, of course, is the chili pepper. I am an unapologetic chili head, as anyone who knows me can attest. Uh, my family buys enormous restaurant-sized bags of, of chilies. We buy gallon jugs of pizian chili bean paste, uh, dobanjiang. We make our own red oil, our, our own hongyo. We use dried chilies. We use fresh chilies. We use preserved chilies, green chilies, anchos, gojillos, cashmere chilies. Chipotles, you name it, uh, you, you get the idea. And so when Columbia University Press reached out about interviewing Brian Dott, uh, author of a new book on the history of the chili pepper in China, I naturally jumped at the opportunity. Uh, well, the day has finally arrived. Brian Dott is professor of history and Middle Eastern studies at Whitman College, and he's the author of The Chili Pepper in China, a cultural biography, which was just published in May. Brian, welcome to Seneca and congrats on the book. Thank you, Kaiser. It's great to be here. So, Brian, what initially got you interested in studying the chili pepper in China to the point where you were willing to just spend what must have been thousands and thousands of hours just poring over arcane gazetteers and pharmacopias and shipping inventories and bills of lading, uh, centuries-old recipe books and, and more? You must have been pretty possessed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was basic, somewhat serendipitous. So I knew you know, in the back of my mind that the chili pepper is native to the Americas. So it had to have been introduced into China. And I was eating at a Sichuan restaurant in Beijing and thinking, well, how did the Chinese start eating something this different, this intense? Mm. 
So if you look, you know, sort of prior to the 20th century, cuisine typically is was a fairly conservative part of a culture and didn't tend to change drastically. But the introduction of the chili pepper is a pretty drastic change. It's got a pretty intense flavor and that heat as well. Um, so that's what just piqued my curiosity. How did they start eating it? And then how did it spread once it was there? So you set out to answer a couple of, you know, pretty central questions. And they're, they're basically, well, how did it enter China? And well, uh, and when? So let's start with those two. I mean, sure. there, are, there are others, of course. But after all this research, you must have a pretty good idea. Can you summarize what it was that you, you just decided and the evidence for sure. what you sure. came to believe? Um, so the chili doesn't go anywhere outside of the Americas until Columbus. Um he probably brought it back, not on his first voyage, but his second voyage back to Spain. Mm-hmm. So it's probably in Spain in 1494. Um, the Spanish at that point were not thrilled with eating it. Um, <laughs> and the main place it crops up there is in monastery gardens as a decorative plant. Uh. Um the Portuguese start moving it around Africa and into the Indian Ocean Basin. Um, they bring it into Goa in India. So one of the initial names for the chili in India is the Goan pepper. Um, hmm. And then from there, it works its way into Southeast Asia. And then from the other direction, eventually the Spanish set up their trade across the Pacific and they start moving stuff primarily from the Mexican Pacific port of Acapulco, and then they sailed across to the Philippines, and eventually all of those, the so-called Manila galleons, are going to Manila. So we have the Chile then in Southeast Asia from those two different directions, and then it gets a little hazier. I was really hoping when I started the project that I could figure out, you know, like within five years or 10 years when it actually arrived in China, but the records aren't that precise. So it's probably, it's going to be coming from somewhere in Southeast Asia, Malacca or Manila being the most likely places. And probably it's, Fujian merchants who are doing a lot of trading in that area. Um, We're talking this would be the late, mid to late 1500s. Are probably the ones that brought it, but it's not, it's very likely that they brought it just as a flavoring on board for their food. And then when those people got on shore, they'd bring some of the seeds with them and plant them. Um, And that's true probably also for the Manila galleons coming across from Mexico. Um, One of the things that's interesting about the chili pepper and one of the reasons it's really all over the world is it will grow in a wide range of climates. Um, So it'll grow in a temperate climate. And this is a contrast with all those spices like that Columbus was trying to get to. Um, black pepper, nutmeg, um, allspice, uh, cloves. They all require a subtropical to tropical climate. um, And therefore, most of the world has to continually import them. And so if you're studying that trade, 
like Kaiser had mentioned at the beginning, you can look at ship manifests and bills of lading and you can tell, oh, they put in 40 crates of cloves and 20 crates of black pepper on their ship somewhere in Indonesia and then sailed it back to Europe. Um, but there's no evidence that chili pepper was ever a trade commodity until we get into the 20th century. Wow. So can, can you corroborate then? I mean, I think you, you, you ended up deciding that it were, there were sort of three spots in which it, it made landfall in China. Um, and those correspond to, well, three different names. Sure. Can you go into that? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, like the, the, the foreign pepper, the fanjiao mm-hmm. and then the fanjiang, the, yeah. the, the foreign ginger mm-hmm. and, and that. So just to be clear that the earliest written record for China for the chili peppers, 1591. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, that's less than a hundred years for it to get from the Americas to China. And probably it was there a little bit earlier. That's just when it first get, got written about. Um, right. So it enters, the first place we know it enters is actually the central coastal area of China, um, modern day Shanghai area. Shanghai wasn't much of anything at that point. Um, so the first author lived in Hangzhou. Um, and he named it uh, Fanjiao, so foreign pepper. So he's very cognizant of the fact that it was coming from abroad. And so that's clearly the earliest first entry point. Now, if we go further north, sort of near the Korean border, the chili pepper was introduced into Korea um, during the Japanese invasions in the 1590s. And it takes Mm -hmm. off very quickly. And then it spreads... I figure probably sort of farmer to farmer through northern Korea and then into um, basically Manchuria, uh, Liaodong area of China. Um, and there, it's a different name. They name it Qinjiao, um, which was no end of confusion for me during my research because Qinjiao is means a pepper from Qin, which is the old Chinese state that first unified China and is... But that's in the Wei River Valley, right. you know, and, and that's all the way out west, right. you know, so, sort of south of the Ordos. Yeah, modern day Shanxi. Um, yeah. And so that name of a pepper from Qin is actually the Sichuan pepper or Huajiao, a pepper native to China. But Interestingly, we use the word pepper and the Chinese use the, the term jiao for black pepper, Sichuan pepper or flower pepper and chili pepper. They're three completely different plant families. Right. Um, so the other name that happens um, is in Taiwan. Um, and there we've got uh, fanjiang, which is foreign ginger. Um, mm-hmm. And part of the thing I think that for these different, some of the different names is means that they're using them in ways similar to ginger in Taiwan, similar to the flower pepper or Sichuan pepper up in the north, northern China. And then also fun, the foreign pepper. In that case, the pepper term is a reference to the flower pepper or Sichuan pepper as well. So I think and hmm. some of the initial use and the popularity of chili comes about as a substitution for other flavorings. It's interesting that that um, 
even today, there are names uh, for chili products. For example, haijiao mian, uh, which means sea pepper uh, mian, sea pepper, you know, uh, flour, whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it, ground, you know, it's ground, right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that, that definitely connotes its foreign origins as well, or that it comes from the coast. Uh, and yet there were a lot, there still are a lot of Chinese people who to this day are very surprised to find that it has its origins in the Colombian exchange, uh, which is really interesting. I'm, I'm curious, Brian. I mean, if you, if reading your book, you know, uh, it, it almost feels like it's, it's aimed at, at a couple of audiences. There are parts that, that, you know, me absolutely riveted, right? Uh, as somebody who's just sort of a foodie, as somebody who's just interested in, in food history. And then there are other parts that are, quite esoteric where you get really into uh some some serious academic stuff who did you actually intend the book for uh i mean weren't you kind of tempted maybe to strip that all out and do another version with a you know a, a, a popular trade press yeah that was just aimed at the foodies? um i mean this was the writing process for this book took me quite a while and i rewrote it i don't know how many different times and of you know, coming out of academia and my first book was very academic. I started with that very academic focus and it wasn't working for me. And so throughout the various rewrites, it got a more popular audience, but probably mostly because I started with that. And that also, I, as a historian, I, I can't let go of footnotes. Um, I, I need them. Um, so I think it's it's you know it ends up being a little bit of a compromise in the sense that I started from that very academic focus, but then through the writing process decided I really wanted to get a broader audience. And then actually the all the different editors at uh, Columbia University Press were really helpful for me. In, in trying to get rid of some more of my jargon and, and open it up to a broader audience. Um, but I think the main reason it's not just that popular focus is because I started from that more academic part. But right, there's right. also, for me, there's I'm not as good at that level of writing as the academic, but I can I can find a balance between the two. Well, we're going to, you know, satisfy all that popular curiosity today on this show. Uh, I mean, let's start. I mean, we, we always talk about the Sichuan pepper or the hua jiao. And, uh, let's, let's, as you said, you know, hu jiao, hua jiao, and la jiao. We all use the same, you know, word and it, it's scientifically correct. These are three totally different species. Uh, just for in case there are people listening to this who aren't familiar with the hua jiao, the Sichuan pepper. Uh, can you quickly describe it? I mean, it's a member of the citrus family. Is that correct? Right. It's related yeah. to so the it's prickly in the ash prickly ash, ash family. Um, it's uh, small and round, very much the same size as a black peppercorn. Um, right. It's the seed pod shell. So as it opens up, there's a black seed inside that's usually not used in the cuisine, but can can be in there. Um, and so it's that that just a very thin, two half sphere shells that are usually attached to a tiny bit of a twig, and that's what gives it the name flower pepper. It looks sort of like a flower if you have the little twig right. with the two parts, or sometimes you can get as many as four of them on one twig, and it really looks like a flower. Um, it has a very characteristic 
taste and flavor yes. and uh, a physical property. Right. It's, so it's got numbing. a strong, pungent flavor, but it's not as intense as a chili pepper. Um, perhaps a little less intense even than the black pepper. But its other characteristic is very unique, and it has a numbing characteristic. It actually numbs your tongue and lips. And some people like to joke that the reason the Sichuanese love it so much is because it allows them to eat more chili peppers because it numbs <laughs> things down a little bit. I found uh, that, that that particular flavor also uh, accentuates salinity. It makes salt taste saltier, too which I've always suspected was part of the reason for its popularity is that you could stretch salt. You could make something very expensive like salt go a much longer way with it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, hua jiao and, and la jiao. And let's, let's speak only about la jiao, about uh, chili peppers here. That has risen to the level of becoming what you call an identity food. Uh, I'm curious what makes a particular food an identity food for an ethnic group or a region. I mean, we can certainly think of others. I mean, paella, right? Uh, gumbo, uh, bagels, right? There are uh, foods that have a particular association with a place that have become almost a, a totem, a, a fetish item for <laughs> people. I mean, you can't visit this place without eating it. You know, you can't go to New York and not try New York, you know, pizza, uh, whatever. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, but, but, like you, I mean, I've run into lots of Chinese people who have no idea that, that they're, uh, or, you know, Sichuanese and Hunanese people, uh, who, for whom their identity food, uh, they believe it to be indigenous. Mm -hmm. They're completely surprised. I mean, there are actually, you know, lots of, I was thinking about this, uh, food items from the Colombian exchange that have, uh, risen to the level of, of kind of a, an identity food as well. I mean, we could probably name some. Um, I mean, like uh, the tomato in, in southern Italy, for sure. Uh, the potato in Ireland. Uh, uh, chocolate in a couple of European countries, in Switzerland and in Belgium, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, none of these things were, you know, pre-Columbian. Uh, so what what is it? Um, what, what makes a food an identity food? Um. I think it, you know, it's something that's probably becomes used almost on a daily basis in the cuisine, and it's something that's going to be in the. It, I think it's important that it crosses class lines. Um, it's going to be used in the. It may start in the more popular, or it may start in the more elite, but it works its way either up or down. Um, and becomes sort of throughout the society um, something that's used. And then, of course, I suspect it's helpful. Um, I mean, we can think a little bit. I mean, it's not completely something that all those cultures can grow themselves. The ch chocolate right. would be the main exception there. Um, the Irish, obviously, are growing the potatoes. The Italians are growing the tomatoes. The Chinese are growing the chilies. Um, so... You know, those ones may be a little more powerful than uh, in the sense that those are being used daily. Um, and so the f I think it's helpful that they can grow them themselves. Um, typically, if you're importing something, it, it's going to raise the price pretty dramatically, which means you're going to be cutting out the lower classes from it. So it has that accessibility right. for lower classes as well. And then it just becomes, I know over time it becomes ingrained and 
people will associate it, um, you know, um, with their home cooking, with going home. And so even, you know, a lot of countries end up with regional cuisines. So within Italy, right. there's different regions. And of course, absolutely in China, um, that if you're from Sichuan and you travel somewhere else, especially if you're, you know, say the 18th century, 19th century, you might not have access to those chili peppers. And there'll be one of those real longings and remembering um, back to the home cooking and and that food taste can be a really strong trigger for memory and just ask Proust right right. exactly (laughs) so uh, I'm curious though I mean I wonder if there are Irishmen who don't know that the potato isn't indigenous to the Emerald Isle I mean, huh. if there are, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, that'd be that would be interesting yeah. to know. I mean, but you know, so I guess a lot of people are probably wondering what the hell was Sichuan food like before the Columbian Exchange? They they had the huajiao, mm-hmm. yeah, they had the the, the Sichuan pepper, uh, they had you know other spices, they had black pepper, but already it had a reputation as being a spicy cuisine. Is that correct? Yeah. So it's going way back has a a a. a a tradition of strong flavorings in Sichuan. And a lot of scholars think that probably a lot of the reason for that is it's it's way far inland. It's really moist in both the summer and the winter. And so you have to figure out different ways of preserving foods. And so a lot of the ways that they developed tend to impart fairly strong flavorings on the food. Um, So pickling, smoking, um, using spices uh, like Sichuan pepper or black pepper or star anise um, as preservatives all really help to impart strong flavorings. And so when the chili pepper arrived, it was coming into a culture that already had that tradition of strong flavorings. there's also within Chinese traditional medicine an idea that you need, uh, if you live in a climate like that, you need to expel excess moisture from the body. And some mm-hmm. of those strong, pungent flavors are really good at that. Once yeah, the we chili- call that sweating. Right, sweating. <laughs> yes, exactly. But once the chili arrives, it becomes the predominant uh, spice for, for accomplishing that medicinal or health value. I can attest to the, the sweating effect <laughs> of chili. Yeah. I don't have it myself, but I know like my, my brother, my God, when he just, uh, it's, it's pretty astonishing. Yeah. That's fascinating. I, I totally buy this idea that it's, you know, preserving food kind of gets you accustomed to much stronger flavors. I, I, I know that's certainly the case. I, the other night I started preserving lemons, you know, in the Moroccan style mm-hmm. and I, couldn't wait the 28 days. I was cooking a lot of Moroccan style food. So I bought some online and I had been told by a Moroccan friend of mine, a guy named Badr Benjaloun, that they were much stronger in flavor than actual lemons. And I could not believe how in- intense the flavor of preserved lemons is. It's, it's, it's like that lemon zest on steroids. <laughs> it's nuts. So yeah, I can totally, I can totally see that. Yeah, that yeah. That's great. Uh, I'm wondering what did the Chinese word la? which is now, it's hard to translate. It just sort of means spicy, right? right. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to hot, um, you know, calorically. 
but what did that apply to before the introduction of the chili pepper? Um, so, um, la- Actually, maybe you talk about the orthography of the sure, character sure. itself, which is kind of interesting. So we right? have the older character for that's often translated into English as pungent, but also could be translated as spicy, sheen. Um, and that character is a main component of the character La. Um, and so that Sheen character, um, you go back to some of the really early definitions of it. It's the, the flavor of hard metal. Um, oh. And you can occasionally, I can, I can occasionally get that when I'm eating uh, pepper, or any of those different peppers. Um, and so that's its initial thing, and it, and it fits into uh, the Chinese sort of cosmography of five flavors. One of them is xin. Um And then... That corresponds to metal, presumably. Cor- right, yeah, exactly. they all correspond to one of the <laughs> They cor- five, correspond five to one of the elements or the phases and the metal element, absolutely. Um, so the la... Prior to the chili pepper is ginger, um, mm-hmm. uh, I can also see that. garlic, garlic. Um, right. and I've you know in my time visiting China, I've had people describe both of those as la, but nowadays really most of the time when people are using that term la, they're really referring to the spiciness of the chili pepper. Um, right. Although, I mean, I, I still use it for, for ginger. I mean, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, when somebody thinks they're getting a cold, we make up that, you know, the ginger, we cut up a ton of ginger and, and boil it in water uh, with some brown sugar or Coca-Cola in it. Right, right. Yeah. And it's it's la. It, it, is, it actually yeah, is yeah, la. Yeah, definitely. Right. Definitely. I've heard even like really heavily carbonated soda described as la. Hmm. I've heard mm-hmm. uh, a strong whiskey, for example. No, yeah, that uh, makes you know, lots of sense. Peppery taste. Yeah, uh, makes la. There's actually it's, references, yeah. I, particularly in a Korean source of using chili peppers in alcohol i think as a means of cutting you know passing off lower lower uh value alcohol as as higher grade alcohol by putting chilies in it uh, which is an interesting uh, concept <laughs> great idea um I, you know you have there's a couple of theories about uh the vectors or the agents of the transmission of the chili in China. Uh, one of them is sort of that it was merchants. It was, uh, you know, people sort of, you know, moving this around as a trade good. The other was that it was just taken up by farmers, that it was you know, something that people planted on windowsill gardens and things like that and, and mm-hmm. you know, possibly decorative, but it, 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 it spread that way. You fall on one side of this debate, and I think it's really interesting because it opens up a whole uh, discussion about class right. and yeah. the chili pepper. But let's start with that, sure. merchants versus farmers. Um, so one of the issues is, and why we can have these fairly divergent interpretations is that the sources are are very incomplete. Um, and so you you can't, you know, there's not... Not surprisingly, the illiterate farmers aren't writing about their transmission of the chili peppers. Um, But there's also no records of merchants trading large volumes of chilies until we, you know, maybe the very late 19th century, but really not until we get into the 20th century. 
Um, so it's really sort of a, a more theoretical interpretation of what's going on. Um, so I fall on the side that I think the the main transmission route would have been peasants or farmers um, passing along some seeds to their neighbors or maybe to the family that their daughter married into. Um, and so it would move slowly through those sorts of networks or they might take some seeds to their local market and just pass them out or trade them. Um, I think this makes a lot of sense because, you know, one of the things I have in terms of looking at some of the lots and lots and lots of different sources is that there are a lot of local names for the chili pepper. I've well, I found yeah. over 50 different names in Chinese for chili peppers. And that's not and counting. And they don't correspond to different varietals? Those are not. Because I mean, there the, are a lot the, of. There are also lots of names for varietals. And those are sep that's a separate list. Um, right. These are ones that are just used sort of generically for any variety. Um, and so, and a lot of them are really colorful sorts of things that would are much more something that would occur to a farmer than a scholar in his studio. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there's the goat horn pepper, the chili, the chicken heart pepper, the chicken toe pepper. So these are sort of body parts of animals that they would be seeing on a daily or maybe, you know, monthly basis. Um, yeah, that's a very strong argument in favor of the farmer. Yeah, the so I think farmers there's that. And, and the fact that we don't have records of them being in in the market and being moved by merchants persuades me that it, it makes a lot of sense that it's that local movement. Um, so a good example is uh, Sichuan. So as we go a transition in, in regimes in the mid-1600s, there's a lot of warfare in Sichuan and a huge, huge loss of population. Um, yeah. And so the subsequent Qing government actively encouraged in my, you know, migration into Sichuan. A major group of immigrants into Sichuan were Hunanese. And by the time they would have been moving there, they were using the chili pepper. And so it's almost certainly those Hunan migrants who brought the chili to Sichuan. Right. Uh, just for the historical context of that, that was there was this uh, sort of bandit rebel leader named Zhang Xianzhong, who was just a, you know, I mean, he was notorious for having killed probably in the millions of people uh, during the, the interregnum you know, at the end of the Ming Dynasty and leading into the, the, the Manchu takeover. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's fascinating. So that you think that was the, the major rush into Sichuan was just because of these Hunan migrants. Right. So Hunan probably, is to you the know, southeast. Hubei of, also, but, but, but yeah. Right, Hubei as well, right, right. Both of which are also notorious for, for having very spicy food. Right. Um, yeah. We were talking a little bit about uh, class divisions. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting that, you know, it took so very long for the Chiles to actually move into the two provinces we most associate with them, maybe the three. I mean, so Sichuan and Hunan and Yunnan, uh, quite late it's really not until the mid 17th uh century or mid 18th century that, that they're attested there right do you think that it's because these sort of scholar literati types didn't pay attention to to this or 
do you think that it was just sort of just this slow osmotic process of transmission, you know, across pretty vast territory? I think it's a combination of both. So I okay. think it's probably it's almost certainly in places prior to it being written about. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's got to be. And then I do think that you know that slowness also helps support the idea that it's moving farmer to farmer rather than some merchant hauling it couple hundred under the radar of any literate person who would have written about right exactly right 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 right. so i mean again back to class divisions i think that's really fascinating because uh, i mean the the chili pepper you you describe a kind of elite culinary reluctance i mean it seems like mao might have been really onto something when he linked chilies to revolution because you know today there is kind of a a, even today a a class struggle when it comes to to chilies i mean let's face it i i lived in china for a very long time uh, the more kind of effete, refined, scholarly types that I was friends with uh, always went in for, you know, the Huainan food, you know, <laughs> the vegetarian stuff or, you know, you know, Shanghainese cuisine, stuff that was not not particularly strong flavored. And, and whereas my earthy, you know, hard drinking rocker friends, uh, they were always up for checking out the, the, the latest, you know, Chuan Sai Guan, the latest Sichuan restaurant. Just and and ordering the the spiciest possible dishes. <laughs> I mean, there was a kind of machismo always to eating chili, uh, a kind of you know you call it you link it to hyper masculinity in, in your book at one mm-hmm, point. Mm-hmm. Can you can you talk about the, that sure. male archetype of it, and then also the female counterpart to it, which is really also fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, Mao's a good example. I mean, he's from was from Hunan. And he yeah. absolutely loved chilies. Um, he would sprinkle ground chilies on his watermelon. Um, and Whoa. so he, one point, one of his doctors recommended he cut back on chilies and he just ripped into him. He's like, how, if I'm afraid of chilies in my bowl, how am I going to face my enemies? Um, so he did a very direct correlation between sort of military capability and the ability to eat chilies Um, and he'd make fun of people who who would come and visit him and they couldn't eat spicy food oh wow (laughs) and so that gets carried over and i mean it's a really common it's probably a little bit apocryphal but it's really really common today for the chinese to say oh yeah mao said that you know without the chili pepper there would not have been a revolution um, yeah. He said something like that, for sure. But he was mostly referring to his own. He wouldn't be able to, if he couldn't eat, he wouldn't be able to do revolution. And if there weren't chilies in his food, he wouldn't be able to eat it. Um, what about the uh, the female so archetype? The female the archetype is, is known as La Meza, which is spicy girl or spicy young woman. Um, it's a trope that goes back quite a ways. But these days, it's, it's particularly attributed to women from Hunan, but also from Sichuan. Um, And they're seen as because of eating so many chilies throughout their lives, it's impacted their personalities and they're seen as being feistier, independent. Um, They'll speak their minds. There's a great song about it, La Meza, where she takes that gusto out into the world because of her because she's been eating chilies ever since she was a little girl so it's feminist <laughs> I, it can't i think so it can um, be. No, it, there's some it, earlier manifestations of it where it's not so much but that's back in the 18th century so. 
Yeah, that's 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 great. Um, and that's a, a topic I think that would be worth like its own book. <laughs> um, okay, so core question here: What were the factors you you think that ultimately led Chile's to gain traction in specific geographies of China? You actually downplay the one that I heard I've heard most often, which is the environmental explanation. Uh, you think that there's something else going I on? I mean, I, I think the um, the medical environmental explanation is stronger than the you just need a strong flavoring because you're living in a really hot place. Um, so for particularly you think of like Hunan, Sichuan, uh, Yunnan, Guizhou, they're all inland. They're super humid both in the summer and in the in in the winter. And like people in Guizhou particularly emphasize the ability of the chili to expect, expel excess moisture in the wintertime. And so I think that was really, really important for that region, that uh, that medical or health aspect of chili peppers. Speaking of health, I mean, maybe we can quickly move to, uh, I'd love to get the audience questions here uh, as soon as possible. But uh, I mean, what was it used for? Okay, so there's some really interesting things. So, you know, really important thing that it's used for, and this goes back to the idea that it's associated with metal. It's it's actually really useful for illnesses associated with the lungs. Um, uh-huh. And then it through experimentation or observation, a lot of Chinese figured out, well, it also is helpful for these other things. Um, it has a... a um, you know, it definitely has an antimicrobial characteristic too, the capsaicin mm-hmm. in chilies. Um, it also is an analgesic, so it helps to reduce pain. Um, so there's actually even a, when inflicting it. a recipe, right? For if you get bitten by a snake, you can put a poultice of chilies on the snake bite, and it's supposed to help reduce the swelling and reduce the pain. One of the ones that I find hard to and you also found hard to understand how this would work. Is there's, I know where you're going. there's a, a number of sources that say the chili pepper is a miraculous cure for hemorrhoids, which seems oh, super counterintuitive. It's really important to realize this is taken through the mouth. Um, so, well, I, I know that it has an effect anyway. It does have an effect, so I don't know. They, they they claimed it was miraculous, so that it worked really, really well. <laughs> I, I know more than a few hemorrhoid sufferers who are, would not go anywhere near a Chongqing hot pot. Uh, a couple more questions for you. Okay, so have you, 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 you all these old recipe books. Did you try any of the old recipes in these ancient, you know, um, pepper-based recipes? I mean, recipes? in a way I have, but the ones that, I, the oldest ones I have are super vague. So it's like, the ingredient list is chili peppers, chicken, soy sauce, and oil. So yeah, I've done that, <laughs> but I've done it in a lot of different ways. But it's no way to tell if I'm really doing it in the way of the recipe. So that's the main right, issue is that they're very, very imprecise. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's always how it is with the old. I mean, these days it's much better. These days, there, <laughs> i.e., actually. Everyone's got a kitchen scale. Everyone, you know, gives the recipes in grams, and so yeah, it's yeah. Uh, much better. But yeah, God, I, I, I was hoping that maybe offline you could send me a couple uh, of those recipes. I'd like for my own. I can sure, experiment. Sure. I'd love to try it. That would be great. Uh, Brian, I'm going to leave with just a couple of lines of doggerel that I I uh, wrote a while back. That from a, a something I wrote called provincial poetry. 
Uh, and I do make specific reference to the chili when I'm talking about, you guessed it, you know, Hunan and Sichuan. So uh, this is just unpardonably bad dog girl. The Hunanese in temperament are piquant as their dishes, like duojiao yutao, capsicum with slow-braised heads of fishes. Add to this mix the province's infernal summer heat, and you see why Hunan Xiangjun had the Taiping rebels beat. So again, that military, <laughs> yep, yep. right? It has it's the military thing. God, I, I was like, you know, you should have interviewed me for your <laughs> <laughs> Then the Sichuan, uh, the Sichuan stanza says, the tea houses of Chengdu represent the Sichuan way. The women toil in earnest while the men drink tea and play. The Chuan Hou plays at Mahjong while the Chuan Mei cleans and mends. And like the Sichuan chilies do, she burns it at both ends. <laughs> yeah, I get it. You see what I yep, did there? Yep. Right, right, right. A reference to the hemorrhoids. <laughs> Brian Dot. Wow, thank you so much, uh, and and best of luck with the book and all the rest of your scholarly pursuits as a fellow chili head. I salute you. All right, thank you, Kaiser. Yeah, and thanks to our friends at Columbia University Press and the Columbia Global Center for putting on this event. Thank you especially to Meredith for setting all of this up and introducing me to Brian. Thank you so much, Safwan Masri, for, for your very kind introduction. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SupChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.